Father God, I declare by faith that my mind is ready, my heart is prepared, ready for this next one, and my spirit is excited to receive your word in Jesus' name. Man, I'm ready if you're ready. Amen. 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 God bless you. An undivided heart. Everyone say an undivided heart. I want you to take that prayer out of your bulletin. Just keep it close by you. Charles Woodson, when he played for the Green Bay Packers, the last time they went to the Super Bowl in 2011, when they beat the Bears to make it into the Super Bowl, he was addressing the team. And this was his theme with the team. One mind, one goal, one purpose, one heart. One heart. Psalm 86.11 says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Different versions of the Bible give interesting translations of this. I just want to look at a couple, and I've got them for you here too. The NASB says it like this, Unite my heart to fear your name. CEB version gives a more general sense. Make my heart focused only on honoring your name. The ERV says, help me make worshiping your name the most important thing <laughs> in my life. And then Eugene Peterson in the message gives this colorful rendition. He says, put me together, one heart and mind, then undivided, I'll worship in joyful fear. I like that. Because it sounds sometimes like the way I pray. Sometimes maybe the way you pray too. Put me together, Lord, because Maybe my life is scattered in many directions. Maybe you found it to be true that most days or many days your heart doesn't seem undivided and it seems like it needs to be united. So I like the phrase both ways. Unite my heart to fear your name. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. First one speaks of our need. Second one speaks of our desire. Because our hearts are so often divided. We need God to somehow unite us together so we can worship him with nothing held back. Can you say amen to that? Maybe there's a situation many of you are facing right now. Hearts fragmented because you feel pulled in so many directions. Sometimes we treat trinkets, things that don't amount to much at all, as if they were treasures and treating treasures like they were trinkets. When our kids were real small, sometimes after church, coming over to our house to eat. A friend of ours would come with us, and many times the kids, of course, wanted to ride with him. So he being that kind of guy he was with our kids, he said, we're going to stop at the candy store. Remember Fanny Farmer? And he set the kids loose, three of them in there. He said, anything you want. One thing, but anything you want. And of all the good candies that were there, they always picked out this sucker that was about, like, this big around, just big, the big handle on it, and it wasn't all that good, but it looked so good, and it looked so awesome, and they would never, ever finish it. It wasn't as good as the other candy, but that's what they picked out. When it comes to understanding true treasure, the world is no help. One pastor commented that sometimes we're enticed by things that turn out to be simply trash. Sometimes we're distracted by things that aren't bad in themselves, but when, they, when we go after them and pursue them, they end up just being trinkets, little Bobbly things that amount to nothing when you look at them closely. It's hard to focus on the real treasures of life. How easy it is to mistake trinkets for treasures. So in order to get a little help in this area, church, I'm going to share three things with you this morning. Three marks of a divided heart. First one, you're going to love these two words. Number one, perpetual ambivalence. 
Everyone say perpetual ambivalence. What that simply means is mixed feelings about someone or something. Being unable to choose between two usually opposing courses of action. It's been said that a narcissist is a person who is unable to commit to anything outside of themselves. Flits from one relationship to another, one job to another, one friendship to another, one church to another, one promise to another, never staying in one place long enough to make anything stick. Here today, gone tomorrow. Make promises, then excuses. And then often says, I'll call you tomorrow and forgets. Never apologizes. Maybe dates one girl and never able to make a commitment because he's so easily distracted and deeply fears that making a commitment will somehow require him to stay married and committed for the rest of his life. To think about a situation, a verse comes to mind from First Chronicles chapter 12. It's a great verse. It really is. In this chapter, it talks about uh, soldiers who come to David's aid when he was in Ziklag and later in Hebron. These soldiers were from various tribes in Israel, and they realized that even though David was not king over Israel, yet God's hand was on him, and sooner or later, he was going to replace Saul as king. So you have a list in this chapter of men from Benjamin, from Gad, from Manasseh, and so on. But probably the most famous in this chapter are the men from Issachar. Look what it says in 1 Chronicles 12.32 about these men who, it says, understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Isn't that a great statement? People who understood their times. And a lot of sermons have been preached on that verse. How important is it for you and I to understand the times that we live in and to understand the word? And if you want to understand the times we live in, you're not going to get it from CNN or from Fox or from local news or any news. You get it from the Word of God. These were people who understood their times. In the very next verse, we find this note about the warriors from Zebulon. It says in verse 33, Experienced soldiers prepared for battle with every type of weapon to help David with undivided loyalty, 50,000 men. Here you have a host of all these trained soldiers who come to David's aid, ready to fight. They show up in full battle gear. They got their shield, they got their spear, they got their bows, they got their arrows. They're ready to do battle at a moment's notice. But you know what? I don't think that's their finest quality. There's something even better to be said about them. It says they were men of undivided hearts, undivided loyalty. The original Hebrew text emphasized that this is a very unusual way when it uses this word, for not in the word heart repeated twice. It's like this, not heart and heart, not double-hearted, not partly for Saul and partly for David. They made their choice. One heart all the time, nothing held back. So the question for me and for you is, are we double-hearted? These men said, David, we're all in. We're for you. We'll go with you to battle. We'll serve at your command. We'll follow you wherever. About 3,000 years after the men of Zebulun came to David, we remember them not for their military victories, which were great. They had many of them. But we remember them for their hearts. They were not heart and heart. They were not double-hearted. They were in all the way. People with a divided heart can't talk that way because they're in and out at the same time. So we've got a second characteristic of a divided heart, which are divided Priorities. Everyone say divided priorities. Matthew 13, Jesus tells us a parable. You know it, about the man who went out to sow seed, right? 
Some fell on the path, some on stony soil, some among the thorns, some on good ground. And when Jesus explains this, this parable, the four soils represent four responses to the kingdom of God. Let's just focus on the seed sown among the thorns. Matthew 13, 7. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then in verse 22, here's the explanation. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who heard the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful. You ever planted a garden, you know what Jesus is talking about, right? No matter how good the soil seems to be and how good you've prepared it, there's always weeds lurking just under the surface, right? If you don't pull them out, they're going to choke out the good seed that you planted. Jesus said some people are like that. They're fence straddlers. You ever heard that term before? They say yes, but when they hear the word of God. Maybe they mean business, but they don't pull the weeds out of their lives. Jesus talked about two kinds of weeds. First, he says, the worries of this life. This refers to any consuming concern in your life that catches your attention, all of your attention. Maybe it's something that's not bad in itself. It could be your health or financial situations or relationships or family issues that keeps you tossing and turning all night. I want to ask you a question, and I really want to know. Have you ever solved a problem, solved a situation, by just stressing and worrying hard enough? If I worry just a little bit more, if I stress out a little bit more, I don't think so. Philippians, in the book of Philippians, where it says, don't be anxious, don't worry about things, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. That is a good verse. <laughs> when things press in on you, instead of worrying, start praying. Everything, about everything and everyone. And then it talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. And yes, we all understand this. Money can be addictive, right? The more you have, the more you think you need, the more you want. You heard the story of the rich industrialist who was a multi-millionaire, almost a billionaire back in his time. And someone asked him, when are you going to stop working? He said, when I make enough money. Remember the answer? And they said, so how much is that? And he said, just a little bit more than what I have right now. That's the deceitfulness of riches, and it's not just a temptation of a rich man. Love and money can come to all of us. It can whisper to us over and over, if we had just a little bit more, I would be happy. By the way, don't answer this question. Just think about it. Are you rich? Billy Graham gave a message on the rich young ruler. And he said, when he said, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And Jesus gave the story of the rich man who came to him and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Remember what Jesus said? Sell what you got. Come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he had great riches. And Billy Graham said, many of you think that, well, that's a great one because it doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. But he said, really, when you think about it, to maybe 80% of all the world, maybe higher, but at least 80% of the world, you are rich. If 80% of the world was here right now and looked at you, they'd say, you are very rich. It's all perspective, isn't it? 
He's not talking about anything strange or unusual. We have things that worry us from time to time, family crisis, sickness, needs, struggles with children, disappointments, setback, career issues, periods of doubt and anger and spiritual struggle. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Yes, they can weigh on us. Things can weigh on us. And then even ultimately, sooner or later, death knocks on our door. How quickly the thorns of life arise to divide our hearts and divert our attention. And they can choke out God's work and leave us spiritually weak. Which leads us to the third sign of a divided heart, which is unclear identity. Hmm. Everyone say unclear identity. Here it is. When the heart is divided, you won't know who you really are. You can't decide which team you're on. You don't know what uniform to put on. You act single even though you're married. You have two sets of friends that keep you separate. Two sets of vocabulary, depending on where you are. You know how to fit in wherever you happen to be. Like the proverbial chameleon, changing colors so that you'll always blend in. Listen, our, our founding pastor, Jim Erickson, Jeannie's dad, my father-in-law, things that impress, and I did his funeral service some years ago. I said the one that one thing that always impressed me from the minute that I first met him, other than he had a beautiful daughter, was that he was the same person wherever he went. Whether he was in church or home or recreating or at the Y playing racquetball, wherever he was, he was the same person. He didn't change to fit in with where he was. That was beautiful. Listen, a divided heart will mess you up. Here's what one man said. Ray Pritchard, good colleague of mine, said, when you join the devil's team, you won't feel comfortable going back to the Lord's locker room at halftime. Think about that. It's a good statement, isn't it? If you join the devil's team, you're not going to be comfortable with the Lord's team. Remember Peter? This is a great example, right? The night before the crucifixion, they're all in the upper room. Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed. Everybody's going to scatter. Everybody's going to leave me. And I think he's saying to himself things, Lord, I, I know these other guys, and I'm not really sure about them, Lord, but I know they're a little weak. They all look a little weak to me, but, and I'm not sure if I would count on them if I were you. But don't worry, Jesus, I'm your man. You got me. No matter the rest of them do, I'll never betray you. I'll never let you down, Jesus. Or simply put in Matthew 26, 33, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. You know what? When Peter said that, I think he meant it, don't you? If you would have asked him, I'm sure he would have said, I know I'm a little rough around the edges. I know sometimes I put my foot in my mouth. Yes, I'm a fisherman. I'm not some scholar. I know my own heart. Lord, I'm going to tell you I'll never desert you. When you join the devil's team, you won't feel comfortable going back to the Lord's locker room at halftime. That's the problem. Peter did not know his own heart. And five hours later, approximately, out in the courtyard, all it took was a little servant girl to bring him down. He turns from bowl to butter. Triple betrayal. And when it was over, the rooster crowed, and Peter wept bitterly, and he went away sorrowful, washed in shame and guilt and regret. Then comes Easter, little knowing that Jesus had risen from the dead. They arise early on. Angel announces the good news. This is what the angels tell them, the ladies. Go tell his disciples. And who? Peter. Tell his disciples and Peter. What does that mean? 
his disciples and Peter. See, Peter's denial had separated from his other disciples. And he wondered many times, what am I now? Am I, am I a traitor or am I a disciple? How quickly he fell. No wonder he's confused. His divided heart tripped him up. That happens when we try to play for the devil's team and Jesus' team at the same time. Some point, people, we have to make up our minds. We've got to choose a team and stick with it. We're going to follow Jesus or we don't. Jesus said, either you're for me or against me, right? Stop messing around with the basic commitments of life. I love the book of Daniel. I've taught on it from time to time. There's this guy, Daniel, and I think he's an interesting guy because he's the one guy, you think about everyone in the Bible that you've read about, they always have some little thing usually, but Daniel, you can't find one thing about him that's not a commitment 100% to the Lord. Everyone else shows a quirk or something, but Daniel? There's a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, said this, now with God's help, I will become myself. Hmm. With God's help, I'll become myself. What does that mean? That leads to a question that's sometimes hard to answer. Do you know who you are? Because until you do, you'll never know where you fit in. Because once you know who you are, you can, you can fit in any place. And that was a secret to Daniel's greatness. He knew who he was, even in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, ripped from his homeland, forcibly marched through the desert to the pagan city of Babylon. There he's enrolled in a school he didn't choose, to learn a language that was not his own, to live in a culture that was both foreign and pagan, trained to serve in the Babylonian court. He was even given a pagan name. You know what the name Daniel means? It means God is my judge. I like that. It tells us he was raised in a godly home. Babylonians called him Balthazar, which means something like Baal, protect his life. It's prayer to a foreign pagan god. And all these changes, he was either... A part of he didn't protest. In the case of his deportation, he had no choice. He was taken against his will. When they arrive in Babylon, his friends are, are put in a, in a three-year all-expense paid training program. You know by their standards, without a doubt, it was a great honor to be chosen at the king's table. I guess it would be like eating at Buckingham Palace, I guess. The king always eats pretty good, right? They give him the best of the best. Eat at the king's table meant you eat the best food, expertly prepared, served with the best wines, eating well every day. All the best the world had to offer. And Daniel said no. He made up his mind. He made up his mind. Everyone say made up his mind. <laughs> he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine. There's a verse in Titus that says, say no to godly temptations. Say no to the world. King James Version says about Daniel in verse 1-8, he purposed in his heart. Look at this scripture, Daniel 1-8. Daniel resolved, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. You can only purpose in your heart if you have an undivided heart. You know the rest of the story, don't you? Daniel and his friends drank water and ate basically cereal, for 10 days. They ended up looking healthier, stronger than those who ate at the king's table. As a result, they were recognized and rewarded by the king himself. Good story. Happy ending. One question hangs in the air. Where did Daniel find the strength to say no to the king? I think it was this. He knew who he was. 
So he knew where to draw the line. Daniel never forgot who he was. He never forgot where he came from. As, as, it was as if he said, look, I may look Babylonian on the outside, but I'm 100% Jewish on the inside. Listen, friends, we operate in this world, but we are not of the world. Do you understand that? You know what I'm talking about? Daniel's story teaches us that you can't corrupt a man from the outside. You can change a culture, but you can't change a character. You can change a name, but you couldn't change his nature. He may have looked like a pagan, but inside, Daniel was a servant of the living God. Even the great King Nebuchadnezzar could do nothing about it. We live in a world today where biblical values are constantly under attack, don't we? And we aren't going to change the world's way of thinking anytime soon. So the question is, will the world change your way of thinking? That's the question that hangs in the balance. Finally comes down to one great principle. When you know who you are, you can serve Christ anywhere. When you know who you are, you can serve Christ anywhere. In your church, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, wherever life takes you. When you know who you are, you can serve Christ anywhere. A man with divided heart can't grasp his true identity. Pull this way, pull that way, and under pressure, inevitably will cave in. Man with the undivided heart knows who he is. Because he knows who he is, he doesn't have to constantly make decisions. Once you become sold out for Christ, once you make up your mind that you're serving him, you know what? Life becomes simpler. I didn't say easier, right? <laughs> I said simpler. As one TV preacher used to say, if you're going to be a Christian, then be one. I think that's excellent advice. Where does it start? With an undivided heart. Back to Psalm 86:11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Put me together, Lord. Or a Spurgeon made a comment on this verse. He gave a really good summary. He said, a man of divided heart is weak. A man of one object is the man. Remember, we're talking about men and women, but that was just the term they used. But with our grandchildren, grandsons, when they did something really good in sports, I would say, Taylor, you are the man. When they would do something good in swimming, one of them, Ethan, you are the man. When Caleb pitched a shutout in high school baseball, I said, Caleb, you are the man. That's something to admire. Man of one purpose, man we want to follow, such as that man or that woman. One mind, one goal, one heart, one purpose. So my prayer for you today is, let's do some holy introspection. Husbands and wives, do you need to do some business with the Lord and with each other? King David knew his own heart. We need to know ours as well. That's why David prayed, prayed this prayer. He looks within. He sees his heart was pulled. He says, Lord, unite my heart. There's no prayer more appropriate, friends, or needed in our world today. Every honest man and woman must at times say, my life is far from what I want it to be, right? We run low on love sometimes. We can get distracted. We can get confused and worried, fall prey to little temptations that lead to big ones. We operate in a hate world. We neglect what we should do, make excuses, find ourselves sometimes both be disagreeing and being disagreeable. Not anybody here but other people. We neglect what we should do. We love the world more than the Word of God. 
live in unbelief instead of walking in faith, refuse to submit when our pride is at stake. And so it goes. The struggle of the soul to find rest and peace. No wonder we get frustrated at times. When the heart is not united, nothing's going to work right. Without God, we're going to be fragmented and torn and pulled and distracted. What do we do? Let's do like David did. We pray. Oh, Lord, take the scattered fragments of my heart and unite them that I might praise you. Only God can do that. And he will do it if you approach him in humility and sincerity. Because until you admit you need God's help, you're going to be stuck exactly where you are until you ask God to intervene. You need to do like David did. I wrote out a prayer that I put in your bulletin there. I want you to follow along while I read it to you. This is a good prayer. The reason I had to put it in the bullet is because you might want to take this home and maybe from time to time when you're struggling with something and you're being pulled in a hundred directions, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need to hear these ancient words once again. Unite my heart to fear your name. So scattered, Lord, pulled in so many directions, so easily distracted. How quickly I forget who you are. How quickly I forget your goodness to me. Unite my heart, Lord. Put it back together again. Refocus my thoughts. Clarify my purpose. Grant that I should want you more than anything else. Thank you for your many gifts freely given. Forgive me for loving your gifts more than I love you. In confessing this, I ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Here's my heart, Lord. Come and rearrange things. Make me new from the inside out. Thank you for loving me even when I seem to lose my way. I love you, Lord. Do your work in me. Unite my heart to fear your name. Isn't that a good prayer? You might want to pray it from time to time. I love the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the worship team is going to come up here right now. We're going to sing that song. But I love these four lines from it. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The first two lines of that describe our need, and the last two lines describe our prayer, doesn't it? Lord, take our scattered hearts and unite them. Seal them by your grace that we might serve you with joy on earth, as one day we're going to serve you with joy in heaven. Do it, Lord. Unite our hearts to fear your name, and we will worship you with everything that is within us. Can you say amen to that this morning? So, Father God, I pray that that was more than just words of a song, but a prayer from deep within our hearts, prone to wonder, but, Lord, take our hearts, seal them, Lord. If we've been struggling and, and, and with hearts divided, if we've been struggling with anger or hurts, whatever it is that's been grabbing our attention, Lord, we give it to you today. It's hurting our hearts. It's hurting our relationships. It's hurting our commitment to you. So, Lord, we give it to you. Forgive our sins. Forgive the things, Lord, that we have put before you. And give us a heart, undivided, Lord, to see the world as you see it, to have a compassion, yes, for the church, yes, for one another, but also for the lost. Lord, that is our prayer. And I pray, Lord, for each one here, Lord, today, the circumstances that are represented by their lives. I pray you'd give them hope, Lord, today, that whatever they might be struggling with or thinking is just an impossible situation, 
Lord, you can do a miracle because you're a miracle-working God. You can do the supernatural because you're a supernatural God. And your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we commit them to you and we commit our lives to you. Maybe for some for the first time. Maybe some just to renew. And some just to constantly say, yes, Lord. An undivided heart. Loving you and serving you. And so, Lord, for our fellowship time together, Lord, we pray right now that it would be sweet fellowship, that our conversations would be honoring to you, that they would be uplifting and encouraging to one another. Lord, let that be marks of a church, let it be marks of this church who loves you and desires, Lord, to serve you with all of our hearts and minds. Bless the food. Thank you for all the hands that have prepared it, Lord. Bless them for that. We look forward to that. We ask your blessing on it, our time, and all these things. We give you thanks. We love you and praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen, church.